um, I should say, Namihi o Matariki, Tatao Homari. So, a happy Matariki, the Maori New Year. Um, we're in the middle of it now, obviously. Um, it's, it's, it's more of a process than an event, which is, there's a lesson in that for all of us. But um, it's a great time for us both thinking with gratitude on what's, what's been and also with hope about what's ahead of us. So, um, we can definitely uh, share in that uh, very much so. Um, so, um, I'm going to try and see if um, the clicker works and I'm going to make sure I've turned it on this time. So that's good. That was my problem last time. Um, so we're looking at uh, Acts uh, chapter 9. And um, just before we do that, um, this was a title I picked for today, Frozen Assets. Topical with the weather. But um, I wonder, uh, have you ever... Um, Ask yourself, so why is it that sometimes governments sort of freeze the assets of prominent citizens from other countries that they ex suspect of wrongdoing? You sometimes see that, don't you? Maybe some wrongdoing like in Russia or something, and they say, oh, they've frozen all their assets. So why do they do that exactly? But they do do it, don't they? Is it kind of an empty gesture? Have you ever thought why they do it? What, what kind of effect does it have? have your assets frozen. It obviously has a significant effect, otherwise they wouldn't do it, right? So um, I'll leave you hanging on that as to why on earth that uh, relates to our, our look through the book of Acts 9, but we'll maybe come back to that later. Um, so um, you remember uh, as we started this, we're asking ourselves all the way through, uh, as we're looking at the book of Acts, these two questions. What is Jesus doing in this situation? And what is Jesus teaching through these events? Because that's really how Luke starts this whole book. He says this is about what, um, previously I told you about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Uh, the implication being that Acts is all about what Jesus continues to do and to teach as the, uh, as the church is formed. And um, interestingly, the church just gets on with seeking a kingdom and Jesus builds the church. And that's the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be too fussed and, and fixated on building the church. We're supposed to uh, work on work on the family business of seeking first the kingdom of God. And, and, and somehow God himself, uh, you know, Jesus himself, builds the church through his spirit. So, um, so that's what we are uh, are asking ourselves as we go through the passages. Um, and just to say, um, when when I first did the introduction to, to, to Acts, this was a slide that just didn't come up because we had a problem, technical problem. But, but what we're looking at is just the most extraordinary spread of the gospel of grace that within, you know, relatively few years went from, you know, just uh, the if you like, the capital of the sacred the sacred world to the capital of the secular world. It went to the very heart of the um, the ruling kind of empire of the day and all of those other places in between. So it is an extraordinary story and a sort of, um, you might call it, you know, geopolitical, world-changing kind of thing. Um, but interestingly, it's, it's, it's not just about those big things. Um, it's also about smaller things too. So this is where we're up to in our series. We've kind of done the stuff on the left-hand side, which about uh, the church's amazing uh, supernatural birth, its presence in Jerusalem, how it, it progressed in power and in purity, remember with Ananias and Sapphira and all those kind of uh, things that were going on, how um, really it, 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 it started to change as the church got to grips with issues where there was inequity and uh, they could 
show grace and favor to voices that might otherwise be overlooked. And that led to, at the end of that kind of formation stage, where really the key character is Peter, that led us into the stage of transition from that formation. Uh, and, and, w and we've got all that interesting stuff ahead where the church just becomes just ubiquitous right throughout the known world. But this is the kind of transition bit. So it's a, the gear change between one bit and the other bit. And um, that we, we, we heard uh, Johnny uh, talk to us about, you know, one of the key characters in that. It's sort of, we've both got the, the kind of, the, the spotlight moving a bit away from Peter into a new, this new character, Paul. But the key person in that transition was actually Philip, who suddenly is bringing that good news message to unexpected people and different people. And that's really a part of the, the change. Uh, and Johnny talked a bit about uh, just, um, if you like, being a carrier and announcer of that good news rather than a salesman with a product to sell, um, if you remember uh, last mm. time. So we're picking up uh, just on uh, chapter nine, which, uh, for big clue for those of you from the title of that chapter, what this might be about. Saul's conversion. Uh, there's a bit of a clue in there. Um, but interestingly, it's not just about um, Saul's conversion. This is a chapter about six people. Saul, someone called Ananias, someone called Barnabas. Then it pans back to look at Peter, Aeneas, and Tabitha. So there are six people involved in here. And... Um, and it is interesting that even though they were in the midst of this amazing sort of world-changing thing that's going on and this really significant transition, that the that we sort of we go from this really big stuff and you know communities being changed and things going on to now I'm going to talk about this person because um, um, one of my favourite quotes and I think it's by David Watson who was a uh, vicar in the in the UK church uh, many moons ago who did. Uh, was did a lot of work actually with John Wimber in the early, in the early days of I guess it was the eighties and that. Um, and one of the quotes that um, he he either he either said this or he quoted this and I can't remember which it was. But um, the second half of it, th this quote is he says, "Christianity that ends with the individual ends," which is pretty profound. But he prefaces it the first half of that quote. It says, "Christianity that doesn't begin with the individual doesn't begin." And both of those things are true. So if this is just if we have a very privatized view of what faith is about, it's kind of Jesus and me, and your church is just this kind of consumer event I, I, I get from my personal top up and then I go back to live my individual life, we're missing the point. But equally, if church is just about being part of a people and a community that achieves change, but isn't about my relationship, your relationship with Jesus, then we miss the point as well. So so we're right back to the individuals, which is which is which is great. What I'm gonna um, do is um, let's just see. Uh, okay, uh, that's interesting that the um, uh, the animation's not quite working on this computer. Never mind. Um, well, we'll talk through that uh, in some stages. But what I what I thought I'd just do is just we'll just kind of read us through a little bit this um, this this chapter. So I'm gonna start with the first couple of uh, verses. So meanwhile. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So I guess the opening thought would be pretty bleak times, right? You know, um, 
how bad do things look? We've already had a load of persecution in the previous chapter, which is what kicked off Philip going off and talking to these 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 uh, different people. But it's hard to imagine what's going to stop this man. And he's really in, intent on extinguishing the fire of Pentecost. He's got the authorities on his side. He's a pretty driven guy, obsessed, you might almost say. He's a powerful man. He's well-connected. And he's full of evil intent. And the church is, you know, has been growing, but ultimately is relatively small and is relatively you know, growing up like a tender plant, you might say, kind of slant, kind of vulnerable. And everyone might look at this and look at what was happening and the way that the authorities that backlash that was happening. And you might think, you know, I, I don't think this is going to end very well for the believers as, as things look now. So, so what is Jesus doing in that situation? But it'd be very easy to um, think that I can only really see one outcome from this, the way it's going. The, the signs are there, the writing on the wall. Well, so that's the first thing, some bleak times. Then um, let's just uh, look at, at 9, chapter 3. Uh, and there is a 9, chapter 3 through 9. There's a bit of confrontation here. So, so as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up. Go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Now the men travelling with Saul stood there speechless because they heard the sound but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So I'm going to, um, I think I'm going to reveal this which will give you a bit of a clue as to where we're going on here. But um, So what is Jesus doing? Well we started off with a murderous persecutor and a bleak time. And um, it'd be easy to get locked into that and think, oh, I just can't see how this can end well. Kind of frozen into that future and can't see a different future. Um, Paul too is a bit frozen, actually. He's stuck. He's fastidious. He's frozen into a very fastidious observance of the law. He calls himself in another place a Pharisee of Pharisees. And, and in his, you know kind of well-intentioned but pretty as the scripture says here murderous <laughs> religious zeal he thinks that this new development he's heard of is just a complete anathema it's just the worst of the worst thing and he's that he's just fixed with that it's all kind of wrong and it's you think it's going to be really hard to shift that him from that view because he's making a he's making a life mission out of it a life mission out of eradicating this thing um so and yet what happens, um, there's a heavenly light, there's a voice from heaven. Now that, I guess if you're Paul, if you can imagine yourself a minute being Paul, being so certain about exactly what you knew was, was the right thing to do, which was to exterminate this, this terrible sect, this terrible aberration. Um, and, you know, there is a brilliant light and there's a, a voice coming from heaven. And you're a good Jew. You know your Isaiah. You know that, wow, you know, wow, is this the Lord commending me for the fantastic work I'm doing? Um, maybe. What an honor. And then there's a question out of nowhere. Why are you persecuting me? Now, what does he say? Uh, who are you, Lord? I'm, I'm guessing that's kind of a bit of deflecting a question with a question, kind of buying some time. And it might have been a polite way for him of just saying, what the heck? You know, because uh, 
I, I'm expecting maybe one amazing thing and I'm just getting, I'm person, what, what, what? Uh, who, what, who, what is, what is this, who are you? And then there are three devastating words, probably followed by an even more devastating four words after that. And the three words are, I am Jesus. So that figure that he was pretty sure was a misguided teacher that had died a death and these rumors and these lies about him being raised again, complete rubbish that we need to stamp out. I am Jesus. You're wrong about the central thing you've been doing for so long, the thing you've built your life around. You're wrong. You're completely wrong. And the object of your wrongness happens to be the Lord of the universe and he's talking to you and confronting you about that wrongness. You know, I mean, that's that's pretty full on, right? So they are pretty devastating three words, that amazing realization that everything you thought was right is wrong. And everything you thought was terrible. Well, it, it's true. And then the the next four words, even more so, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So he's confronted with the personal responsibility. What's he going to think at that point? Maybe he's thinking about holding the holding the coats while they, while they, oh, he saw Stephen stoned. Maybe he's thinking about the forced confessions he got out of other believers, others who he had arrested or disappeared or whatever. He's thinking about all of those things, thinking, Jesus is saying, I take it personally. If you're doing it to them, the least of these, you're doing it to me. Wow. I mean, you know, oh. we've, we've seen before that kind of um, uh, in a parable, haven't we? You know, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Well, when you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. The surprise, both of the sheep and the goats in that parable. But now it's not only a parable. It's absolutely real life for Paul. Amazing. Now, this is the first of three times Paul's going to explain how. Thing. But what's the immediate response to that? He's utterly, utterly broken and completely estranged. So um, he gets up from the ground and and the bright light's faded and gone, but, he can't, but it's now completely dark and he can't see a thing. He's helpless people with him don't really understand what's going on other than they heard that there was a noise and um, he gets his way uh, you know God's actually told him wh what to do Jesus told him what to do which is you know go into the city and and then you'll be told what to do next so you know kind of just cl click straight into obedience uh, to this new thing and um, and yet maybe that's how the story ends right could we, you know, we're all sitting here because we know the thing is the problem we have is it's a bit like, you know, you when you're when you're watching when you're watching a, a film, but you you you've already know a bit about the sequel. You're like, yeah, the suspense in the plot now is kind of gone because you you know that that person survives because you can, you know they're in the second film, right? So, so, you know, and and it's a little bit like that with us because we know oh this is about Saul's conversion and what happened after that's all in the church and Paul and all the rest of it. Well, he didn't know that, and we didn't know that, and the early church didn't know that. Nobody knew that at this point. All we know is you know, completely confronting 
challenge that upends everything that he's known, leading him to be completely broken. And not only that, completely helpless because he's now uh, blind and dealing with all the issues from immediate major disability and loss in a world that really doesn't care for people with disability that well. And all of a sudden, he's a, he's a pretty needy guy. You know? There was a reason that beggars were blind. Uh, bl uh, you know, blind people were beggars, actually, in, in those times. So he's, he's immediately gone from being a very powerful person to be an incredibly, incredibly vulnerable person and also completely messed up in terms of his thinking because he's, he's realizing that everything he's put his life into that he thought was so good was actually, uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was highness, it was awful. So um, we might have thought, ah, oh, that's how the story ends because, and you know, well, that's kind of a good thing because you know, maybe Paul lives out a life of racked with guilt as a shell, a shell of a man, but at least God has neutralized that one who is gonna be destroying the church, so. You know, not such a terrible thing. has been dealt with so great, and we all go, ah, let's move on. But of course, God's not like that. God's not like that. God's not going to leave someone like that. Because God is in the upcycling business, we might say. So he's there, he's broken, and he's estranged. However, um, it's not going to be simply that Paul can kind of pull himself up by his bootstraps from that, or even that the you know, the great love and grace of God direct, you know, in a one-to-one -one Jesus to Paul is going to be enough to to transform him. He's still a broken man. He's estranged. Imagine being that estranged, right? Because on the one hand, he's probably going to that, you know, so he's going into uh, Damascus, big city, and he's probably staying with somebody who's probably an associate who's also in the business maybe of trying to eradicate the, you know, it was very sympathetic to what he was doing when he started out on that journey. And what's he going to say to them? Mm, don't know, really. But he's, you know, he's, 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 he's being put up somewhere and he's being looked after. Um, but he just doesn't know what's going on and he can't eat and he can't drink and he goes three days, so he's dehydrated. He's probably got a splitting headache. Um, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's not in a good way at all. And, um, and what's it going to take? Well, enter our second character, Ananias. So, um, verse 10. In, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas in Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So, who might, I was trying to think who might Saul be most like from recent times. And, um, you know, who, what would be, a, how would we relate to this character? Because it's, you know, there aren't many people around doing what he's doing. So the, the best I could probably come up with from, from, you know, recent years would be maybe, how about maybe Osama bin Laden, right? So, so this is, you know, someone who is absolutely obsessed and will stop at nothing to destroy the infidels, according to what he believed in his religious code, was 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 right. And Paul has that similar, just zeal, and and it's it's aggressive, and it's you know it's all of those things. But so imagine if you're having your imagine if you were having your quiet time. You say, oh, I wonder what the Lord's going to say to me today. <laughs> and the Lord says, I'd like you to go to the house of Muhammad on K Road because Osama bin Laden is waiting there, and. Uh, I want you to go and, 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 and he's got some needs and I want you to go and bless him. I want you to go and heal him and make sure that, you know, make him powerful again, you know. So, 
So, like, imagine that. You know, imagine, imagine that. Um, so, of course, Ananias says, well, Lord, you know, I've heard reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all those who call on your name. And the, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man's my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands. And, and he, he, um, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you're coming here, sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's cured of his blindness and he's filled with the Holy Spirit gets himself baptized as well, all in that little bit. And he takes some food and he regains his strength. And um, so that's like, if you look on that little diagram, so how do we, how does he get from broken and estranged to where, what God's going to do for him, really, from that real lowest point? Well, the first thing that has to happen is there has to be someone who is obedient to the vision and obedient to what God's saying through that vision. And that's Ananias. Even though he thought, well, hmm, this could end really badly for me, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, this is this is going to somebody who I'm pretty frightened about, who's, you know, pretty intent on doing me and and all the people who I hold dear harm. But actually, well, God's saying to do it because because God's seeing something that I'm not seeing. So so Ananias had to accept, didn't he, that Saul can be different from his rep- reputation. You know, he's got to believe in God's redemptive power because basically if he's wrong, he's probably dead. Yeah? So that's a pretty serious, actually, if, 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 if you're wrong about this, then, you know, it isn't going to end well for you at all. You're going to be literally straight into the hands of the person who, um, you know, and, and I also think there's something a little bit, this is a little bit like when God called Jonah, right? Because God called Jonah when Nineveh were, a superpower, you know, who 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 were were a huge threat to Israel, and God caused Jonah to go and turn them from their evil ways, so that God doesn't have to destroy Nineveh. And that's why Jonah's kind of got the hump because he's like, "But hang on a minute, if they turn back, then you won't bring your disaster, and they'll be powerful again, and they're a big threat." So it's there's something a bit similar, I think, um, to that, um, which is interesting, isn't it? So. Um, so what happens next? Well, um, let's have a quick look down here. So um, if we go, uh, so let's pick it up from verse 19. Um, Saul spent several days with the Damascus, uh, disciples in Damascus, and at once he went, goes out to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. And uh, all those who uh, heard him were astonished, thinking, hang on, isn't this the man that was raising havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful, baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, after many days had uh, gone by, Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of his plan, and um, basically they smuggle him out through the city gates in a basket. So kind of he's gone from being the persecutor to being the persecuted. And when he came to Jerusalem, this is important, and next he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. 
He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved around freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. When they tried to kill him, the brothers um, took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus again. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. That's the end of that little bit. So we've got Ananias who's obedient to the vision, and and, and that really leads to Paul being very remade, and you can see him functioning pretty well where he is. You know, he's he's a he's a blessing to the 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 little group who've come to know him. He's standing up for the faith. And then he goes back to the the he, he goes for the first time actually to the to the believers in Jerusalem, and they, but he's still kind of estranged, right? Because he's a man with real reputation. So what is it going to take? Well, here's the thing I think is really interesting. We don't hear anything, do we, about there being any kind of vision for Barnabas. He doesn't have a vision. He doesn't have, you know, oh, the Lord says this, go and do this, go and do He sees something in Saul. He says, I'm going to go and advocate for him. I'm going to go and talk. Because Barnabas, his name, son of encouragement, means he's kind of got this redemptive insight that, you know what, God can change people. And I can see maybe God's changed this guy. So he goes and he advocates. He goes and talks to the disciples. He's a bridge builder. And he can say, you know what, this guy, God's done something with him. You've got to unfreeze him. He was frozen because God's done something. God's done something amazing and turned him around. And so when that happens, then all of a sudden Saul's added to the Jerusalem church and he's out again preaching to the Hellenistic Jews in, 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 in Jerusalem and he's, he's part of sharing that amazing good news and that amazing message. And, um, you know, it finishes there saying that the church you know, enjoys a time of peace and it thrives and the Holy Spirit's at work and it's growing and it's got the, it's in the fear of the Lord and it's growing and, and it's really flourishing. So we're, time is not our friend. <laughs> this morning, I don't want to overstay the time, but the, the, um, the situation then pivots significantly in the next little bit and it talks about several things that happen. So from uh, verse uh, 32, uh, then the camera kind of swings back and we look at Peter. So he's uh, traveling about the country, he goes to the saints in Lydda, and he founds, finds a man named Aeneas who's a paralytic. Uh, he's been bedridden for eight years and he heals him. And then there is basically there's a revival in that place because this guy's been healed and it's pretty amazing. And that's classic John Wimber power healing situation of, you know, he's... He's healed him, and then that, that healing is a great demonstration of the, the veracity of the gospel, and at least to lots of people getting saved. So that's fantastic. And then uh, just uh, probably two or three hours' walk away from there is Joppa, which is a big city port. And, um, you know, and, and, and probably Aeneas probably thought, well, I've been bedridden for eight years. I can't see this getting any better. And suddenly he does. And so there's, you know, God works through amazing power through Peter, and that thing that seemed hopeless and frozen is unfrozen, and all of a sudden he can walk again and all these people come to know the Lord. So it's amazing. Next thing that happens is in Joppa, uh, there's a, a, a woman there called Tabitha and she's 
just, you know, she's thriving, she's connecting with the needy and doing amazing things and providing for them with garments, all this kind of stuff, and, and she dies. And knowing that Peter's there, the disciples in that area say, can you come, even though she's died? And even though they've, they've, they've washed the body and they're getting it ready for burial, Peter, can you come? So high is Peter in their regard and knowing all the stories about, you know, that his shadow just, you know, he walks past and his shadow is enough to heal people, all that stuff. You know, what we need here, we need, a, we need, an, we need an amazing miracle. We're prepared to trust for it. And Peter, can you come? So he comes. And sure enough, you know, shuts them all out and he says, get up. And just as he's seen Jesus do, he does likewise. And, uh, and she's raised to life again. And again. There is an amazing revival. Loads of people, because she was really well known, not just among believers, but among the needy. Loads of people come to the faith. So there's a bit of a mini revival again with Peter. So, so why are we? Why is Luke helping us to see this amazing story of Peter, who just seems so full of power, and what he is doing is transforming cities and towns through these amazing acts of miracle? Why are we seeing that? here when we've just read the story about Paul and sort of getting into his very lowest point and then God sort of turning him around a bit and then him just about finding his feet and then him just about being reconciled and then God doing some good stuff. Why are we now seeing Peter who seems to be at the peak of his anointing and faith and power and impact on the world? Why why is why is God showing us that? Well maybe, maybe because if you think back way back to a Peter standing in a courtyard having said for the third time I don't know this guy and Jesus looking at him and him being utterly utterly broken man and thinking that well you know where was he well he, he, he went off with the disciples fishing went back to his old job what he knew, to, knew how to do and uh, Jesus met him didn't he on the resin Jesus met him on the beach over a fish breakfast. And he said, do you love me? And he recommissioned him three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And and so what we're seeing is that brokenness that that Peter had been you know, pretty broken. You could have written him off at that point. And yet here he is making such a difference. What we're supposed to see from this is, this is like the same thing happening again. Even more so, in some ways, with Paul, who is, you know, even more set, you know, probably way, way, you know, way, way down the line of, of, of being hostile to the things of God. Not only having let the Lord down, not in that sort of sense of broken, but broken because everything he thought was right was wrong. He's been turned around. So what we're getting to see is, look at, look at what God will do when he upcycles someone's life. Someone who you might have written off. Some of you might have thought was you completely, you know, you would freeze them into that's just their future. Nothing can, you know, that is going to be impossible to take them away from that course. That's how much God can do. That's how much God can change an individual and through an individual, cities and regions and nations. So that's why we're, we're seeing this. So in, um, let me see if I'm, oh, I seem to have stopped working now. Could you possibly flick it on? Oh, no, oh, no, Rob. We we both have the same challenge. I feel better now. 
It has. Yeah, this was an asset. It's completely frozen. Still no join. Okay. Well, I'll tell it to you. I'll tell it to you. It might pop up in it in a minute. So I'll leave leave that with uh, with Rob. See if we can un un unfreeze it. So what are we being taught? Well, look. I guess four things to take away situations as being beyond hope of change. It's quite easy to do that. It would have been easy to, for the early church to do that when they saw how Saul was, was doing what he was doing and think that just, I can't see how this ends any differently to what is playing out in my mind and in my fears. Ah, fantastic. So, secondly, it's often these very situations that are how God reveals his glory because what he delights in is confounding our expectations about that. You know, it's, it's, it's like the Lord like loves a challenge kind of thing. Um, so it's not actually always the most likely people. It's often the most unlikely people and the most unlikely situation, the situation that seem completely impossible to fix that God delights to work in. Thirdly, um, is this. We inhabit a world, don't we, today, here, in the 21st century, here in New Zealand, here in Auckland, where many people get written off, actually. We live in a society that can be very quick to write people off, and maybe even sometimes we can be quick to write people off. And the fourth thing I want to say is this, that when the outsider became the insider, the church flourished and grew. Paul was the absolute definition of an outsider as far as the church goes. Completely feared, you know, wouldn't want them any, wouldn't want them in a million miles coming through the door. He'd be absolutely terrified. And yet he was the outsider, became the insider. And then the church grew and flourished in the, in the fear of the Lord and in the work of the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to embrace redemptive change as of God, then all of those frozen assets, those things that God could use to really transform us, because actually we're going to see the best in people and we're going to allow them to have a different future, a future that God can be at work and can change from what we might see and know. So um, over to you at this point. I don't know whether, Lloyd, whether it's you want to come up and just um, do some uh, lead us in some worship, but I want to just finish by just posing a few questions here. So, and then we'll just um, perhaps, in fact, why don't we, um, as Lloyd, uh, guess, why don't we stand together as we finish? So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to be at work in us.